The Weekend Variety Wireless. Hello, and a very special hello if you're listening via the podcast. The show is a podcast hour by hour. So you can download it and take it anywhere you like. Uh, oh, there were a few shipwreck tales missing from the archives. We're working on that, and a way around it is we might just uh, play a few in Grant Smithy's absence over the next few weeks. Not next week. He'll be back next week. We're doing the Buzzcocks. Another music in a different kitchen, I think, from 78. It's Lou Reed's Street Hassle from 78 after 11 o'clock tonight. But now, call 0800 844 747. 0800 844 747 if you would like a double pass to pretty much anything you like. At the International Film Festival, it's starting in Auckland. It will be going around the country. Uh, you can, the, the, the tickets will apply. You can, it doesn't matter where you're from, as long as you can go. Okay, 0800 844 747. First caller through, no hoops to go through. James Crute with a few highlights from said festival after this. The Weekend Variety Wireless. At the movies with James Crute on Radio Live. James Crute, hi, how are you? I'm very good, Graham. How are you? Great. Uh, New Zealand International Film Festival's on. We make no apologies about being all over it because a lot of these things you don't get to see again and what a fabulous array. Oh, and I found it, well, I think it's a little gem. And speaking to the author in the next hour, the author, the director, Paura uh, Joseph. Yes. Um, Maui's Hook. It's... Okay, as gloomy subject matter as you can get. It does rain a lot in the movie. It's beautifully shot, but, um, you know, it's about suicide. Blur. Um, but it's this really clever combination of drama, documentary, and surrealism, and you can't spot the joins. Yeah, it's very clever, isn't it? It's, uh, was it four or five different uh, families' tales of, uh, you know, who have... Uh had to live with the aftermath of suicide, but juxtaposed with this sort of one fictional narrative that kind of drives things on, uh, which even has Parora Joseph as uh, one of the characters within it, if you like. Well, wow, yeah, he's a major but, character. Yeah, yeah. Or is he a character? Well, that's the thing, yeah. No. yeah. <laughs> um, but, yeah, no, as you say, it is one of those times where that blend of... Uh, documentary and drama actually works and it is actually enhanced you yeah, know somebody yeah. actually thought long and hard about how the two things what you know what might be missing if we did it as a straight documentary that we can add by using uh dramatization and it yeah, works it really works it it's does first it's, time first time i've watched a movie and i went oh i yeah, got really look, really scared and, and at and one I, point and i think you know it's going to have an interesting release strategy it's going to be uh, i think it's v- playing pretty much at all 13 uh, or 14 different places around the country with the film festival. And then it's, rather than going into cinemas, it's going to be sort of taken on a sort of travelling roadshow. Oh, great. It's been so a while around since one of them happened. and community areas. You know, g- getting to the people yep. that, that you know, where this discussion needs to take place. I mean, this discussion needs to take place around the whole country. Yeah. Let's be honest. You know, it's worse than a road, road toll. But, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah, that's yeah. true. I mean, but even aside from the subject matter, the um, the artistry of the damn thing, I think it's just fabulous. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Uh, we'll move on to your, some of your selections. Um, and what I'm going to do at this end 
you say what they are, and I'll look them up like it's a person does in the program, and you can talk about them. Science fair. Let's start with that. Okay, I'm in the back. S for science. Start talking. I'll be there shortly. <laughs> so this is a documentary very much in the Spellbound style, which a lot of people have heard us talk about a lot. That's where you get a disparate group of people uh, all with a single goal and you follow them in, in, as they attempt to get to that goal. Uh, the goal here is the International Science and Engineering Fair. Good heavens. Yeah, which is essentially the script spelling bee of science, but even more wide-ranging. I mean, the Americans, I guess, they're a little underdone when it comes to science sometimes, aren't they? Mm. Um, so they've, you know... Oh, hang on, hang on, hang on. We can't forget. They've been pretty damn good. Yes, true. Today... But today, but is, in 1969, they landed on the moon. This is true. Okay. But, but I think it's an area where they acknowledge that other people around the world are actually quite good at it as well. Unlike, say, the spelling bee, where they try to limit it to the Cayman Islands or oh, something like that. I see. So they, they tend to open this up. So uh, how people exactly qualify is somewhat... Uh, you know, dodgy in some ways. But anyway, unlike New Zealand, there's a pathway. So you do your school science fair, you go to your state or region science fair, then you go to, you know, this is essentially the national science fair that becomes the international science Oh, good heavens. So you start and, off club rugby, maybe to ITM, you, you go to super whatever it is and uh, maybe get selected to be an All Black. Yeah, well, that's kind of right. And, yeah. you know, there's plenty of money uh, pulling around in this. And some of the topics that these kids are doing are quite amazing. You know, they're, they're uh, you know, it's not just something that the Young Enterprise Scheme can make a buck off right. the side of or looking at, you know, uh, types of algae. These are things that could change lives, essentially, coming up with... Uh, ways of, well, I don't know, desalinisation and, um, you know, finding di alternative food sources, this kind of thing. So, you know, and, and some of these uh, schools take this very, very seriously. Ah, um, like wrestling. So, yeah, <laughs> yes, yes, like in some wrestling in some American oh. schools. But it's about, I think it's 1,700 students from around 75 countries in total. Yeah. Some of them work in groups, some of them are individuals. Um, the ones we follow are from uh, particularly strong schools, uh, you know, in various states in the US, as well as a young German boy who uh, is obsessed with uh, flight and, and the um, applications of aeronautics. Um, yeah, look, if you're into these kind of uh, documentaries that celebrate youth and celebrate innovative thinking, then, you know, this is kind of one of those joyous kind of things. There's no real downsides. And even when you think someone's going to miss out, they somehow find a way. There's always loopholes in these American uh, competitions. There's okay. always a wild card sort of entry. Right. Uh, uh, is Are there any so-called um, science uh, kids coming up with this will disprove evolution for Jesus or um, you know, now, a, yeah, an entry from Turkey that. It, doesn't, the same thing? it seems to be more of a secular kind of thing. Okay. If, if, so, it, so it's uh, preaching to the converted if you like. Oh well fair enough. It's, yeah, pre exactly. it's pretty hard to get the intelligent design into science and yes. probably just as well. Yes. Uh, if we go to the other end of the spectrum and the world of Ant Timpson, which mm. we always love, uh, Mandy has to be one of the kookiest movies you'll ever see. Page 86. Yeah, that's right. Well done. Um, it is playing, uh, I believe, Auckland, Wellington, Christchurch, maybe Dunedin, a couple of other places as well. Good God, I've got a picture of... 
freaking what's his name is blood all over his face, Nicholas Cage. Nicholas Cage. This is Nicholas Cage at his most nutty. Uh, I think, uh, having said that, because Nicholas Cage means a lot of different things to a lot of different people, and in fact, our mates over in Melbourne are having a Nicholas Cage movie marathon as part of their international film festival. Lost Highway. Well, this is definitely. Uh, uh, this is definitely one for the David Lynch fans who are missing Twin Peaks The Return or a new David Lynch movie. Oh. It's very much a movie of two halves. Mm. The first half is definitely the more surreal. It's uh, Cage plays this kind of uh, forestry worker who appears to chop a tree. It's hard to tell, actually, because uh, he only does it very briefly, who's besotted by uh, his uh, girlfriend, Mandy, played by Andrew Riseborough, and they sort of seem to be fairly blissed out and everything gets rather surreal. But their lives are interrupted by this uh, sort of cult leader who decides that he wants Mandy for himself and that Mandy is, you know, kind of his, or yang to his yang sort of thing. And she rejects him, laughs in his face, so he wreaks his vengeance on her, which of course then leads to Nicolas Cage wreaking his vengeance. So the second half of the movie becomes an all-out, blood-soaked <laughs> revenge movie. Okay. But okay. one that just goes off on the craziest tangents. So there's, um, I'm trying to remember what it's called, there's an ad for a thing that's something like a, the Cheese Goblin, there's an emergency test broadcast, okay. uh, and there's Nicolas Cage going completely nuts and chasing after Jesus Freaks, as he calls it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. It's so bonkers that it's just, so compelling. Marvelous. I just think they've kind of... Yeah, I mean, you have to push past the sort of first 15, 20 minutes. You have to know what you're in for because it kind of feels a bit hippy-trippy and surreal and sort of, you know, the end of 2001 rather than anything else. But then it becomes this kind of, you know, Mel Gibson, Liam Neeson-style revenge movie, but with a bonkers twist. Marvellous. Yeah, exactly. And good on Nicolas Cage for doing nuts stuff still. Oh, look, he's, you know, he's right into it. But a lot of it really doesn't sort of transcend the, you know, bottom shelf at the video store. Yeah. Such things still exist. Did you know there's only one blockbuster left in the U.S. now? Really? Yep, only one blockbuster video. And I can't remember what. The, the two in Alaska have closed, including the one that had Russell Crowe's jockstrap. Oh, and so there's one left, and it's somewhere bizarre, <laughs> some small town, somewhere like Kansas or... It'll be somewhere cold. Just okay. turn it, just change the sign at the front. Oh, no, keep the sign at the front and put another sign underneath it, museum. <laughs> so true. You've got it. Exactly, especially now it's the last. Yeah, keep, um, all, keep all the bids there. Okay, uh, now Wings of Desire. Yes. Now I've had a look at this. Whoever's put this, done this, it looks so much like the original Wings of Desire. Even well, it is the, the original the, the Wings of Desire. The publicity shot looks the same. <laughs> what? Oh, okay. This is part of the 50th anniversary celebrations, Graham, okay. and I think you knew that. Yes. Um, so, yeah, because Auckland is turning 50, and some of the rest of the cities are getting a bit of retro love as part of this. But, yeah, Wings of Desire, Vim Vendor's beautiful look at what, what pre, pre um, or, or still split Berlin, shall we call it that. Oh. Um, look, it's just gorgeously shot. Hollywood tried to remake it with Nicolas Cage, even. Mm. City of Angels with Meg Ryan, which was very much more a conventional kind of Hollywood angel ghost love story. But um, this is very much a, a moody kind of piece and, 
Yeah, it's just there's just something about it, isn't there? Yeah, and it's that silvery black and white that does do something, doesn't it? Yes, I think so. I think it's just it, it it's as they say in the castle, it's very much the vibe mm. about that one. Yeah, definitely. Okay, from um, Bendis, and of course the music is a, b- a big thing within it as well. Yeah. Um. Oh, oh, Bono had something to do with that, didn't he? He's fairly. They got very uh, close on that kind of thing. Uh, Nick Cave do something. Oh, Nick Cave, for it? of course. Yes, that's right. Yeah. Okay. Um. um and you, you've got uh, two minutes, basically. Yeah, yeah. Uh, also on the retro scene, Liquid Sky, which mm. is very much uh, the other end of the eighties, isn't it? Nineteen eighty-two as opposed to eighty-seven, but. Um, you know, this is the kind of post-punk club scene in Manhattan mm. and sort of weird aliens. And this was the start of New Wave, really. This was a film that really kind of uh, brought New Wave to the the masses in a way. Um, and it's just kind of very blah, mm. wacky looking. I mean, you know, I guess it, you can sort of tell it was made at the same time as David Bowie, as Cat People. Oh, okay. The one with the David Bowie soundtrack and Natasha Kinski. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah but it has that kind of, although it's a very different sort of tale, it just has that look about it, that early 80s kind of colours that shouldn't be, you know, tangerine skylines and mm. um, just, yeah. It's Is Lou Reed a, snarling in a corner anywhere in it? <laughs> he almost should be. Mm. He almost should be. Yeah. Okay. Uh, thanks very much. Should Usain Bolt join the A-League? <laughs> oh, I don't know. I think he might be better off somewhere else. The A-League is full of people who hack you down. The A-League's full of people who can play football for 90 minutes. Yeah, uh, true. I don't, uh, but I think he'll be cynically. It's like him joining Serie A. I, th- I believe the A-League is the Serie A of the Southern Hemisphere. Oh, <laughs> the Southern Hemisphere! The, the rubbish hemisphere! Yeah, yeah. Okay, look. <laughs> like, like Argentina's League is the real Serie A of the Southern Hemisphere, but, right. but in terms of cynical and... Um, yeah, dodgy defending. Then the then the A League is definitely no. He should be he should go somewhere else. He's a runner. Okay. Anyway, we'll see. Um, well, Phoenix going to sign him, are they? No, some other. I don't know what's going to. It was a stupid idea. Anyway, <laughs> maybe I'm stupid. Um, that's it for our cinema and football review. Yes. Uh, of a Saturday evening, the. Day, the, uh, 1969, they did land on the moon. Um, New Zealand International Film Festival, fabulous fun. We've got heaps more coming up, um, including the director of Maui's Hook. I think it's quite a special thing. That'll be in the next hour. But next up, Max Cryer, answering your questions on words, their origin and meaning, including this. yippee Kaye, Or is it yippee Kaye? Bothered somebody. Words with Max Cryer. Words in papers, words in books, words on TV, words for books, words of comfort. Here he is, Max Cryer. How was your week? It was just like every other week, seven days. Oh. Can you believe that? Yeah, whole, or each one in there. Well, it's. It Scientists was... discovered a, a new day between Monday and when, uh, M- Monday and Tuesday that nobody's discovered before. It's been going on for years. Well, it was all invented anyway. Yes, of course. In it the was. seven days of the week. And, you yeah. know, it's arbitrary. It, um, well, I wouldn't call it arbitrary because it can be very difficult if you decide to ignore it. <laughs> oh, that's true. <laughs> okay. Uh, the word of the week before we get to answering your questions, and I'll remind you how you go about that uh, shortly. But the word of the week first. Property. We hear so much about it now and who owns what and what's been happening to it and how it can be rezoned and etc. Well, the word started out, of course, in Latin, 
pro meaning for plus privus meaning one's own for one's own and that evolved into pro privo meaning for the individual in particular and then it modified to proprius meaning one's own special ownership that traveled through old french into english 700 years ago and gave us the word property meaning possession of something owned now to begin with the word property referred only to chattels because land was referred to as estate oh. and that lasted for quite a long time but once established in english the word property took on a wider meaning and could and now can mean land or goods or even something non-physical. Um, the ownership, for instance, of a certain song or a piece of music, mm -hmm. the copyright, if you compose a piece of music and it's registered and recorded, then you own that piece of music. So the composer owns a piece of property, and like all other properties, if it is used, it must be paid for. Oh. All right. Well, in most circumstances, they try to do that. Uh, now, if you want to ask Max a question, uh, just go to the Weekend Variety Wireless webpage. There's a clearly marked email thing. Just say click here to email Graham. I pass them on um, to Max. And you can also ask on Facebook. That's fine. I get those messages and pass them on if you want to write and send it physically. P.O. Box 8880 Simon Street, Auckland. All right, let's go to a rugby player's next gig. Now, why is someone asking about next gig? What is a gig? Well, the word gig, um, ever since the 1700s, the word gig or jig has been used to signify a party or a spree. And it was a term often used by jazz musicians because jazz by its very nature often arose from people getting together casually making music together casually in a sort of joyous kind of party but in the early 1900s the word underwent a slight change among musicians so that very gently the gig started to refer not to just a party gathering but to a gathering which did involve a lot of people and a lot of music but the musicians were being paid this use was influenced by the fact that classical musicians working in orchestras with a ballet company or an opera or a symphony tour always referred to their dates as an engagement. And gradually the word gig took on meaning of any kind of musical job and then widened even more to refer to a situational contract into which one was booked for a specific time period, maybe a night, maybe three weeks, maybe a whole sports season, or even working in a school for several years. And so the word gig, um, to a certain extent, was a narrowing down of the word engagement. Oh, really? Which started out as more formal, like a symphony orchestra player would have an engagement to go to, to a concert in New York, and a jazz musician would have a gig to go to New York. Right. But they sort of joined hands, if you know what I mean. Yeah. And now both words are in use, and both words mean a specified period of time. And while we're there, I think I'll look also at the name Dag, because that's where the listener's question came from. The name Dag derives from an old French word, drague, D-R-A-G-U-E, which meant a knife or a dagger. And the word came to England as a name after the Norman Conquest, 1066. The name dates back to usage in the medieval time as a nickname for someone who habitually carried a dagger or who was a manufacturer of them. 
The name was used to describe those forming an official guard, who of course did carry a knife or a dagger. Plus, it grew to mean a dag was a lively fellow. It's from the same origin, related to a knife or sword being sharp, and as far back as the 1600s, a dag referred to a knowing and daring young man. By the 20th century in New Zealand, a dag was a way of describing someone very knowing and a bit bold and amusing. Then there's the lump on the back end of a sheep. <laughs> that word dag, for many years, wait for this, many years that meant the scalloped or pointy decorations on the hem of a skirt. Oh! And it modified into the word tag, as in price tag, a small addition hanging off something else. But in terms of Israel Dag's next gig, I am saying, and I presume I'm right, that that means a paid engagement of some months or years. Yeah, this is a professional rugby player. That is fascinating. So someone who might just be carrying a knife, a dag, yes. for the dagger. Well, yes. That's yeah. fascinating. All right. Um, where does the word badgering come from? Has it got anything to do with the badger, the animal? Well, yes. Badgers are quite large animals. Um, they live, they've got a striped, thick striped coat and strong claws. They live most of the time underground. And an expression in English names them when someone is badgering someone else. It means they're pestering them, nagging them, trying to persuade the person to do something they might not want to do. Now, alas, this expression comes from a very cruel rural English pastime. Dogs and badgers don't like each other. So in a so-called game, dogs were assembled and a captured badger... No! ...placed in an open barrel, was let out into the open ground, and while the badger desperately sought for a burrow to disappear down, because it was too late to start digging one, he wanted one already made, while he was looking round for that, the dogs would assault him on all sides, torment him from escape, sometimes ripping him to pieces. Now, this harassing of an innocent animal led to the term badger, meaning someone is being nagged as relentlessly as the dogs attack the badger. You hear it sometimes used to describe a lawyer relentlessly questioning a witness to try and make the witness say something the lawyer wants them to say. Or, in certain circumstances slightly more mild, children who want to be taken out to see a movie when their mum and dad feel the need to do some gardening. So... Bothering the person. Badgering, badgering means bothering the person till he becomes frustrated and might agree to do what you want with him, and it descends from one of the cruelest games in knowledge. That's awful, it's isn't it? It's quite awful. <clears throat> yes, but then on the other hand... It's not even the badger that's doing the badgering, it's the dogs that it's are doing the, dogs the badgering. Doing the badgering. <laughs> but, you know, when you think that here in New Zealand there have been complaints about rodeo being cruel to animals, and cruelty to animals is generally not, not um, uh, encouraged, but... But on television we have fishing shows in which fish are yeah. tortured mm. and treated like dirt and carried with hooks in their mouth and flung into the air and, mm. and just appallingly behaved. And no one seems to consider that as a cruelty to animals. No, it does get a bit of a pass. I think there's the thought that fish are different. They Really, do they know they're alive? Do they feel pain? Um, I've heard arguments about that. Nobody but knows. Nobody knows, Graham. I think... I, I go down the track of, are they? I think 
whether they can feel pain or stress and those sort of things, I think they might know the difference between feeling good and feeling bad. Well, I've seen, I've glimpsed enough of TV fishing shows to see them hanging from a hook and showing perfectly, perfectly validly that they're very uncomfortable and unhappy and want to go away. Yeah. It is, that's cruelty. But I have been fishing. As most people have. and But did you toy with them and hang them up and take photos of them? No, nah, I bang them on the head as soon as I can get them in. But I always thought, oh, this is, it does seem cruel. I'm taunting Seem the... cruel? It is incredibly cruel. No, no, no. Just ordinary fishing. With no, no, bait no. on a hook, um, it's, it, you're taunting them, oh, here's something really good, and it ends up really, really bad. And I thought, you know, the chasm between those two. Uh, feelings is not good. It's like, it's a dreadful lie to the animal. And then by the time I've had to rebate 16 times and I haven't caught anything, my attitude changes. I'm freaking feeding these animals. Well, so good one for you. <laughs> <laughs> well, a streak of kindness suddenly emerges. Uh, okay, Max, uh, we'll take a break. And when we return, uh, we'll have a look at Baldrick. Really? Down the tubes? Which tubes exactly? And a wonderfully famous song with uh, a, a complex and deep history, Ghost Riders, and something in there that goes yippee-yay-yay. Two songs. Two songs. Yes, there's more than one. Yippee-yay-yay, or is it yippee-kay-yay, a listener asked. The Weekend. Variety. Wireless. Words, their origin and meaning... Uh, pretty much confined to the English language, but there's a lot of spillover, uh, as English is a, a wonderfully mongrel language. Uh, Baldrick. Baldrick. Now, this is the, the name of the character. I don't know if the question is associated, but uh, famously the name of the character in... Um, Blackadder. Uh, Blackadder, yeah, with Rowan, well, the, a with the Rowan word, Atkinson. The question is actually about the word. Oh. Although the, the listener was curious to know whether the, the name of the character was associated with something that was real. Does the word Baldrick have a meaning? Well, mm. yes, indeed it does. The word is a very, very useful word. The word has been in use in English for over 700 years. It means a belt worn over the shoulder. It comes from the French baldre, and that comes from the Latin baltios, meaning belt. And it's usually connected with the military. The military still uses it because a baldric often held a sword or a pistol, or for military musicians, it held a bugle or a drum. You've seen it a hundred times. In military portraits, when the uh, belts were often white, which made them stand out. Now, as you've just mentioned, um, the word came into a lot of notice during a TV series in which the role of the eccentric servant called Baldrick was played by Sir Anthony Robinson. Now, Sir Anthony Robinson is not only one of Britain's highly regarded actors, but he's also a member of the National Executive of the Labour Party. He's TV host for the History Channel's National Geographic series, The Birth of Britain. He hosts the scientific TV history of mankind's struggle with climate change and a worldwide high-definition TV series investigating the myth of America's Wild West. And in between all that, he's authored 16 books published for children. And was the host of Time Team for about 15 years. Yes, indeed. So let us remember that when he is playing Baldrick, he is acting. <laughs> yeah. Not actually like that at all. No. <laughs> That's his job. Um, gosh, Time Team was fun. Uh, oh, the last series went downhill uh, 
um, quickly, though, it was after Mick Aston's death, I think, uh, that things, or when he left Time Team, he was the person that held it together with some integrity. All right, so that's a Baldrick. Now, how did we get down the tubes? Well, this question came from a citizen um, who visited a large swimming pool and saw it equipped with steps reaching a roof-high tube, very wide, which curled and curved through the air, masses of water flowing through it, and an open lower end out of which people crashed into an adjacent very deep pool. Now, this was all 100% safe and obviously exciting, but the wonder arose, the question arose, could this be the reason for the expression down the tubes? Well, no, it can't be, because the expression has been around long before technology or architecture had reached the possibilities of huge, safe tubes above a swimming pool. The meaning is fairly clear. If something is said to be down the tubes, it is a project, a relationship, a career, or an organization which no longer has the effectiveness it was once noted for. Ah, but the origin isn't exactly known. The phrase is a variation on the very old concept of something going down the drain, or the British version which developed down the pan, meaning, in case you wonder, the pipes or tubes which take the toilet waste away. America didn't seem to like those two expressions, and the first known publication of the term down the tubes that I could find was in USA in 1954, when a famous baseball player had broken several world records, but found that his, last, his latest world record had been broken by a young upcoming player. And the famous one said of that incident that he had visions of his own records going down the tubes. Do you know what the baseball... I don't... It's not... I'm just interested. I like baseball a bit. Who were the players? Do you know? I didn't take a note of okay, the name, but right. it was 1954. It was before oh. your time, Graham. You were, you were too young in 1954. Yeah, but but <laughs> there are books. Yeah, I've heard of that, yes. Yeah. And then in later years, the show Kojak... Telly Savalas used to say, for instance, wine and women are beautiful, but business is strictly down the tubes. No, the short answer is there is no swimming pool involved in the, in the expression down the tubes. Um, I can give a piece of advice on how to amplify your enjoyment of those big water slides. I've never seen, I've never, uh, tell me about it. You've not it, been down a water slide at Wairira Hot Bowls. Graham, have you ever seen me standing up? Yeah, you know the tubes are long. They're long enough. Your your feet won't be out there's the end with your head out the other end. You're not that tall. Limit. There's a height limit. There's not. I'm two meters tall. There's no way I'm going to climb into a tube. <laughs> they're great fun, but they're more fun if you dare close your eyes for the duration or have yourself blindfolded. Oh really? That. That really amps things up. Next it's three times the ride. Next time you're going to say, what about if you go in backwards? Oh, yeah, but I reckon blindfolded is, it would even be more of a woohoo. Well, I well I've tried it, you see. My, my good friend Duncan, who um, ha has a lot of great ideas, he says, do it with your eyes closed. And it's like, holy thick. It's amazing. What's that word for people who enjoy pain? I know it's not misogynist, I can't think what it is, but there are some, there, there are some unfortunate people who actually like... Sadomasochist. That's the one. Right. Well, that seems to be <laughs> like you're on the first steps towards it. <laughs> well, it's a th yeah, I suppose, well, it's a, it adds to the thrill of the affair. At least, I am told... Go out and try it at once, kiddies. 
Ah, <laughs> oh, no, there's a height restriction. Parents, blindfold your children and send them down the tubes. No, there's a height restriction on children, too. Is there? There's, there have to be a certain... Well, I think there are examples in this city where there are requirements that a child is a certain height before it's allowed in. Like, very, very, very small children. Really? Not, not encouraged. Oh, okay. I'm amazed you're so up on the rules and regulations of why we're a hot pulse and the water slides. I'm a researcher, remember? Oh. <laughs> okay, somebody, somebody asked the cowboy holler that we hear from time to time and made famous in songs, Yippee-I-A, or is it Yippee-Ki-A? Well, the listener asked... Because we I hear both, don't we? Well... It's tricky. Um, the listener asked me, can I explain about an American song with a chorus which sometimes says yippee-yay-yay, other times says yippee-ki-yay, and he says, is there a correct or incorrect version, or is it a local dialect? Well, the question is interesting, but I think the listener had a slip of the finger on his keyboard, because when he wrote to me, he wrote about this catchphrase occurring in a song called Ghost Riders in the Sun, but I'm sure he meant Ghost Riders in the Sky, mm. because the tagline he asked about is certainly in the chorus of that much-recorded song. Well, the yippee part is very old. It's about 600 years old, and it, it's had a, quite a change of meaning, because it used to be an imitation of bird song, but over time it graduated into imitating a dog's bark, and then over more time the yippee just settled into a somewhat signifying part of a cowboy call, but with no actual meaning. Usually just a calling out, more or less saying, listen to me. Well, 1936, it moved into music. The first known use of the yippee call in a song was Bing Crosby, who recorded a song called I'm an Old Cow Hand, which had a chorus line which Big Bing Crosby sang, yippee yay yo i yay I may, I may have said yippee yay yo yeah, it's actually difficult to know the difference sometimes, although I listened to Bing Crosby doing it. Now, ten years later, this is the good bit, in 1948, Stan Jones composed Ghost Riders in the Sky, which he recorded himself in 1948, and he definitely sang, I found the recording, and he sang Yippee-I-A, Yippee-I-A, Yippee-I-O-A, twice, Yippee-I-A, and then Yippee-I-O-A. Then in 1949, um, major star Burl Ives recorded it, and Ghost Riders in the Sky from that moment on became very famous. Burl Ives sang the chorus as the composer had sung it. Yippee-i-a, yippee-i-a-o-a. Now, God, I love Burl Ives. Oh, it's terrific. He's just got such the something. I can't put my finger on it, but it's there's called, some I can, warmth to I his can character. Tell you, I can tell you. It's called Magic. Yeah. You hear that voice and you want to hear it keep on going. He's one of my favourite vocalists ever. Well, he certainly made that song world famous. Um, but the phrase, I'm afraid, is a bit mysterious. American scholars point to a slightly different phrase, yippee kaye, which was reputed to be a battle cry from Native Americans long before white men arrived there. Ah. And certainly before recordings were invented. 1979, we moved to Johnny Cash and Willie Nelson, duetted together on a recording of Ghost Riders in the Sky, and they sang Yippee-I-O. However, it seems to be true that you'll sometimes hear it sung as Yippee-Ki-Yay or Yippee-Yay-Yay. Uh, the listener mentioned Bruce Willis's version, and I checked, and Bruce Willis does say Yippee-Ki-Yay. But I think 
there's no 100% answer. We have to live with the variations. The first version of the phrase heard by most people was Bing Crosby, 1936. If the phrase is as old as scholars tell us, and if it does come from an old Native American language, nobody knows which one. And everyone since has had one or two slightly different versions from what Bing Crosby actually sang. So I have to say to the listener that there's no 100% genuine answer to whether yippee yay or yippee ki or Bing's version of yippee yay is what we can call the correct version. Yeah. I think we have to allow the country singer to choose which one they'd like. Though I find that Burr Lives is a difficult act to follow. He sings yippee-i-o and it really makes it sound very good. In the song, there's a word which in Burr Lives' song and in every other version, there's one word which nobody has asked me about yet, but I feel that somebody will. So what I'm going to explain is what cowpoke means. Oh, nice. That's yes. in the opening line, cowpoke. Yeah. Well, the word cowpoke dates back to the 1800s, and quite simply, it originally referred to the fact that cowboys used long poles to prod cattle when loading them into railroad cars. So cowpoke, I can tell you, yippee-yay-yo, yippee-yay-yay, yippee-ki-yay, I'm afraid there are about four versions, and you choose the one you like. Right, right. It's a bain-marie of yells. Bain-marie? It's like a buffet. You can just, oh, I'll, I'll have some yippee ki <laughs> yes. today because I, I feel like a cut in my Absolute, yell. Absolutely right, yes. All right. Now, July We're going to hear Burl Ives' original recording. He did two in 1949. Um, one just, I think it's just him and a guitar. Yeah, um, that's, the original, that's the original one. It's beautiful because I think it highlights his voice better. It's far, far lesser known than his um, orchestrated one with strings and everything. But, um, gosh, I love he his voice. He didn't need any of that. No. That, that was a magic voice. Oh, yes. Now, July the 21st, today is the 49th anniversary of something quite momentous in world history. Mankind first walked on the moon. Now, in New Zealand, people were able to hear live radio coverage of the event, which by dateline and time sequences made it here um, just three o'clock in the afternoon. Kiwis had in, were so enthusiastic they invented space-age names for their golden Kiwi lottery tickets. The local shops reported that they ran out of batteries for transistors as New Zealanders prepared to live the moment the eagle touched down. Now, the American project to get men to the moon had cost $29 billion, and incredibly, the moon craft and all its computerized travel and communication gear had less computer ability than today's average cell phone. The moon landing engendered a strange perception in New Zealand which remains to this day. 1969, New Zealand had international radio wave ability, but not international television link. So, the actual landing was actually heard live as it happened during the day on radio, but Australia had international video linking and they were able to film the event as it took place and it was flown over to New Zealand as soon as possible and shown on TV after it arrived, which was sometime after the actual walk took place. Mm. But people often remarked, and you will hear them say it still, that they saw man walk on the moon live. Well, they didn't, of course. Nobody in New Zealand did. It was filmed footage, which was shown some hours later. But that misconception between live and recorded still exists, and indeed the television industry plays on it, deliberately advertising something like Britain's Got Talent as live, when of course it isn't live at all. 
It's a recording made weeks before. It's questionable whether they've got talent as well. Well, it's called, the show is called Britain's Got Talent. But yeah, but not, some people put a question mark at the end of it. Well, I don't, I don't notice that in the, in the broadcast, but they use the word live, which is a lie. It is not live. Actually, just, that's really unfair because of all the talent shows and those X Factor things, of which I just find almost all of them appalling because every second singer is an Aretha wannabe, and you shouldn't wannabe. Um, the British one, they do have really interesting people. I think they've, you know, I don't know, there's a dog that says sausage or something. I mean, and so you don't mind them telling a lie? You don't mind the fact that it's actually recorded? That's not my point, Nate, so I've moved on from that. <laughs> I'm just saying that the British ones actually, they have more interesting people. Well, my thing is language, you see, and I object to a title that says British Gone to Helen live, when it's not live at all, it's recorded. Well, what about my, oh, I've, I've got a record by Rolf Harris. It's actually signed. I think the um, the currency of this has gone down what, somewhat over the last few years, but he even drew me a little picture on it. Rolf Harris live, and that's on a record. Well, it was a recorded a recording of a live performance. So oh, you're holding it in your hand, so it's obviously not actually live. No, but it was. That would be magic, wouldn't it? Well, Britain's Got Talent was was real when they did it. Yeah. It was live on the stage. Yeah, but isn't that what they mean? No. Oh. It's recorded when it goes on air. Here's another failing of English spelling. For years, as a little nipper, that record that I saw, Rolf Harris Live. Oh, yes. Rolf Harris Live. And I wondered, why is this record called Rolf Harris Live? Were you but a child when Rolf Harris was still singing? When that record made it into the lounge next to the stereogram... Yes. Stereogram? Yeah, or something like that. <clears throat> it was made of wooden. It had a lid at the top. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Rolf Harris Live. Well, but now Stupid, you, can go, it? you can go home and watch the television and turn on Britain's Got Talent Live. Yes. Oh, well, which which artist is the greater? Rolf Harris or Bill Lives? Um, gosh, what well, they, a they voice. They both have merits, but... Bur of course Bur they do. But Bill Lives was magic. Oh, what It wasn't a magic voice. to look at, you know. He was... No, he's, well, and he's kind of like a... Colonel Sanders, in some ways, without the moustache. Colonel Sanders with integrity. Oh, what a voice. There's just something about it. And the way he can hit those high notes, he, he, he goes high in unexpected registers that you think, this, you can't do that. Are we going and it to... never sounds anything, it doesn't sound like a put-on. Are we going to hear him? Yeah. Most ghost riders in the sky. Yeah. His original recording, the one before it got all orchestrated, they're both great. Oh, and just a little piece of interest, perhaps. Ghost riders... Uh, or Riders in the Sky, I think it was first called, um, has its musical origin with When Johnny Come Marching Home Again, da da, da, -da. The, um, And that has an ancient origin going way back to Ireland. But who wrote the tune? That goes into the trad nobody knows. Mm. So that wasn't the man who wrote Ghost Riders in the no, Sky? No, his is kind of an... He borrowed... The, uh, the the structure and theme. Stan Jones, oh, yeah, wrote. yeah, he composed Ghost Riders. Correct. And recorded it. Yeah. Mm. So Bill Ives was actually the second person to record it, but Bill Ives was so much a better singer yeah. that Mr. Jones's recording just disappeared. So here he is, the Colonel Sanders of excellent singing.
their lives. An old cowpoke went riding out one dark and windy day. Upon a ridge he rested as he went along his way. When all at once a mighty herd of red-eyed cows he saw a plowing through the ragged skies and up a cloudy draw. still on fire and the hooves were made of steel their horns were black and shiny and their hot breath he could feel a boat of fear went through him as they thundered through the sky for he saw the riders coming hard and heard their mournful cry Their eyes were blurred, the shirts all soaked with sweat. They're riding hard to catch that herd, but they caught him yet. Cause they've got to ride forever on that range up in the sky. On horses snorting fire as they ride on, hear their cry. on by him he heard one call his name if you want to save your soul from hell ride on our range then cowboy change your ways today or with us you will ride a trying to catch that devil's herd across these endless skies Must ask Max that one of Burl Ives and his original version, his original version of Ghost Riders in the Sky. New sport and weather coming up. <laughs> 